Many of us have seen the shocking images a few months ago of Afghans desperately clinging to U.S. military planes evacuating from Kabul, Afghanistan's capital. Those images represented the chaotic and what many would call disastrous end to the 20-year war in Afghanistan. As the Taliban once again consolidates its power in the country, it is now trying to gain legitimacy and international recognition. One of their first steps was to ask to speak to world leaders at the United Nations. Why does speaking at the UN matter for the Taliban? What is next for Afghanistan and for the balance of power in the Middle East? Why should Americans pay attention to what happens in the region and in the United Nations more generally? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Bias, the open-minded perspective podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Craig Albert, Associate Professor of Political Science at Augusta University. Today, we are talking to Nadia Jalani Heiler, a senior lecturer in political science at Augusta University. Professor Nadia teaches a variety of classes, including Introduction to American Government, U.S. Foreign Policy, Middle East Security Studies, and my favorite, the Model United Nations, which we'll get into. She also conducts research on economic sanctions, cyber aggression, terrorism, and government responses to COVID-19. Professor Nadi is an expert in U.S. foreign policy, the U.N., and the Middle East and Northern Africa. Thank you, Professor, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into this. So first of all, what is your take on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? Was the Taliban takeover of the country inevitable? At this point, the Taliban takeover was probably inevitable. Yeah, that's my take on it. I think that especially after the Doha agreement between the United States and the Taliban, kind of leaving out the Afghan government itself, really set the stage for that Taliban takeover, kind of sent the message to everyone else within the government, within the military forces, that this is between the U.S. and the Taliban now, and whatever happens to the government happens. Um, so it kind of sent the message that we didn't necessarily have a ton of faith in the Afghan government and military to begin with. Has the U.S. failed in Afghanistan? Have we failed our Afghan allies whose lives are at risk under the new Taliban regime? I think that given the history of invasion in Afghanistan forever, the United States was kind of doomed to fail from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and if we look at, you know, British invasion of Afghanistan failed, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan failed, the United States tried to come at it from a slightly different angle where, you know, we tried to work with the locals on the ground, we tried to set up a government that was internationally recognized, but international invasion of Afghanistan is largely doomed to fail for a variety of reasons. And so, I think that over 20 years, Afghanistan benefited in some ways from the United States invasion. Um, but there are a lot of people, I'm sure, who lost lives, were casualties of, of that war who would say otherwise. I mean, nobody's done well in Afghanistan. I mean, to my knowledge, the only kind of successful campaign against Afghanistan was Alexander the Great. And he was successful, but as soon as, of course, he died, the, the Greeks and Macedons lost power in Afghanistan. So nobody has been able to come in and, and hold the front, so to say, with Afghanistan. I think it, it's one of those places that we, they call the graveyard of empires, right? Yes, yeah. So bringing this into the context of the UN, did the UN system fail in Afghanistan? Because I, I think I can say 
everybody knew somebody was going into Afghanistan. So there wasn't like a unjust part of the Afghan war for uh, getting rid of terrorism after 9-11. So right. why wasn't it a UN mission versus U.S.? And could they have done better? So I think largely it wasn't a UN mission because the UN wanted no part of it. <laughs> the I mean, no part of the conflict, right, of fighting. They've learned over the years that they're not very good at that. Um, you know, Somalia, Bosnia, mm. you've had peacekeepers on the ground where bad stuff happened and it really hurt their reputation. There was a big reputational cost for that. And so knowing that this was going to happen anyway, knowing that the United States was well-equipped to go in and with a quote-unquote coalition of the willing with NATO, NATO forces as well, there were more than enough people, military forces, to, to fight this war. And so the United Nations did what it did much better, which is negotiation, bringing people to the table, figuring out the details of an interim government, and of course, humanitarian aid. So explain the UN's like peacekeeping idea. Well, what's its general mm -hmm. point? Why does the UN even exist? Let's say that. Because in my mind, it's like they didn't want to part in Afghanistan. Well, isn't this kind of what they should be doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we think of the United Nations and how it was created and, and what it was created out of, it was the end of World War II um, and kind of trying to take up where the League of Nations fell apart before that. And the ultimate goal was a collective security pact that members would come to each other's aid if they were attacked. But the way that the system ended up getting set up was such that the Security Council, which is kind of the only body that really has the authority to send in fighting forces, send in peacekeeping troops, um, sanction countries. They really have kind of the power to engage other countries in ways that challenge maybe their sovereignty a little bit. Mm. And that Security Council is made up of five permanent members. The P5 is what they're referred to as. The United States, China, Russia, France, and Great Britain. And those are all the big, powerful countries in the world. And they don't like to impose sanctions or send peacekeeping troops or get involved if it harms their national interest. So all of those P5 countries have a veto in the Security Council. And so that ends up kind of stymieing the opportunity for the United Nations to really take a lead on international conflict. So Russia and China would have never allowed the UN to go into Afghanistan anyways, even if the UN was capable of, of that type of peace operation. Yeah, you probably would have seen some opposition, some vetoes to a UN peacekeeping operation there. If the Taliban were allowed to speak at the, the United Nations General Assembly, what would that mean? Would that, would that give the Taliban legitimacy? Help me understand this. Right. They do have control. And other countries that also have questionably ethical policies are members of the United Nations, right? Saudi Arabia is a member of the United Nations, longtime member. Other countries that have similar policies against their citizens are also human rights abusers, are members, right? They have that legitimacy. Um, but yes, to answer your first question, 
being recognized by the United Nations, being invited to speak, grants the Taliban the legitimacy of the international community. And at this time, they're very hesitant to do that. It's, again, kind of inevitable that it'll probably happen. But at this moment, the United Nations has some leverage over convincing the Taliban to maybe change their policies, lighten up some of their policies, to influence what happens on the ground in Afghanistan. So if you want to be a legitimate member of our community, you should probably impose these changes to your policies and then perhaps we'll allow you into our club. Is this a, a kinder, gentler Taliban or is this a Taliban who's savvier than they were in 96 to 01 at understanding the media and messaging and and now and they definitely understand social media. I mean, just like Al Qaeda, just like ISIS. I think a lot of it is that they're better at measure uh, at the messaging, but They've also become better governors in general, right? I mean, if we think about Afghanistan before the 2001 invasion, there was no economy. There were, there, you know, the, the policies were really strict, and but there wasn't a lot coming out of, there wasn't a lot of production coming out of Afghanistan. And part of that was that the Taliban are religious scholars. They're not economists, right? right? They're, they don't have a lot of the training in other areas of education that that they really needed. And they were only putting their own people in these positions, and they may not have really been qualified for that. And so that might be something that they've learned. We've seen that they're kind of trying to tamp down on the educated right. people leaving the country, partly because they know that they need them. And yes, they may be rounding some of them up. Some might be abused, tortured, what have you, killed. Um, but others might be convinced to come into the fold and, and help the government. And they have put people that are non-Taliban, like uh, Hassani, they appointed him to a minister position, and there's been some fighting about that, but right. they, they do seem to be reaching out. And I wonder if the Taliban learned from ISIS. And again, the, you know, this is a sensitive subject. We are not validating the Taliban as rulers or ISIS, but it's interesting to draw the, the understanding that the Islamic State learning from Hamas, understood social services, understood like a social security net. So I wonder if the Taliban has learned from that. And therefore, they appear to be better governors because of their experience. And they've been around for a long time now, yes. like trying to learn how to govern and fight. You know, I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but the Taliban was out of power in Afghanistan. And, and of course, you've got Pakistani and Afghani Taliban as well. Um, and the, there was a big earthquake in Pakistan, and one of the first organizations that was on the ground helping was the Taliban, wow. right? Which is kind of surprising to think about this kind of militia fighting force being kind of a social security force. But yes, Hezbollah, Hamas, lots of these organizations have social wings of their organization that you know you can belong to Hezbollah and not ever pick up a weapon. You're helping with health care in your community or, you know, providing food to the indigent in your community. And, you know, there's a smart reason for this because you can recruit people right. to your cause much easier if you're providing this. And in countries where the government isn't doing that for people, right. then they can turn to these organizations, which gives them legitimacy in their eyes, gives them power, gives them a recruiting tool. It really is a smart way 
to grow your organization and keep it alive. So from a foreign policy perspective now being a little parochial, just as U.S. citizens, Mm -hmm. why should Americans pay attention to Afghanistan and the Middle East? Well, terrorism largely can affect us. We saw that with 9-11. And that's something that our foreign policy experts have to keep an eye on and, and keep that, you know, we need to know what the chatter is. We need to know what the plans are so that we can stop them before we have another attack on our soil. Unfortunately, you know, we are the big kid on the block who is a major target for a lot of these terrorist organizations. Is there something that the U.S. can do, like, for conditions on the ground to to prevent terrorism? And is there some kind of cultural understanding or, or some type of... Is there a way besides fundamentally altering U.S. the United States' foreign policy or national security strategy that could help alleviate potential threats from terrorist organizations? I can't think of any, to be honest with you. If you come up with an answer, that's probably a Nobel Peace Prize. Right, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, yes, messaging can help, right? So trying to better understand the Middle East, better understand Islam, better understand the cultural differences between these countries and the West or the United States. Um, But these groups also need a bad guy. Mm. You know, they need somebody to point to as the bad guy so that nobody's looking at them, right? Al-Qaeda has killed many, many more Muslims in the world than they've killed Americans, right? And, And so, you know, if people take enough time to think about it, they might not come up smelling like roses and having the big bad enemy is something that these organizations really need. Um, Sometimes it might be the governments under which they exist themselves. So Middle Eastern countries themselves, uh, which are very autocratic, tend to be very autocratic. I don't want to lump everyone together. What's that mean? Um, They, you know, have very strict governments, authoritarian governments. They, Uh, don't provide a whole lot of human rights. And one of the other things that we see in these countries is that that the governments also tend to dabble in the private sector as well. So they give their friends the contracts, the cushy government contracts, and Mm -hmm. and they're all making money off of the business of government. And everybody else in the country is kind of left to their own devices. So that's a system where there's a lot of resentment against the government. Um, and it's also not very Islamic, right? There's a whole like social justice aspect of Islam that is not really being carried out in these Muslim majority countries or most of these Muslim majority countries. Um, and so that's another thing that organizations by giving this sort of social angle can tap into and say, look, we're doing the real business and, and work of the true faith. And, and so that is another way to kind of legitimize their actions when they aren't in line with Islam. So, you know, murdering civilians is not... Islamic. Islamic, <laughs> right. yeah. It's not something that the prophet taught to do. So, um, so, you know, they're able to kind of say, don't look at what we're doing here, but look at what we're doing here. Um, and your government's not doing it, so we're going to fight against the government. So it could be more of an insurgency type of thing within the country, but more so it helps to have the big bad United States, I think, as 
the num enemy number one of many of these groups. And I should also mention that one of the reasons that the United States is the is the ultimate bad guy is because we get a lot of the blame for the authoritarian governments that exist in these countries as well, right? Americans forget or never learn about how we've propped up many of these authoritarian governments in the past and and continue to in some ways as well or continue to legitimize them in, in various ways. And so, you know, that's another reason that there's this resentment towards the United States because, you know, people look at their lives, um, the way that their government is holding them back, so to speak. And why is that? Well, because the United States, you know, kept dictators in power, helped shield them from from international shame or what have you. So the U.S. thinks that propping up these dictators creates stability in those governments, which is in the national interest of the U.S. Yes. But those regimes tend to bear down on human rights and not create decent or dignified living conditions. And so groups believe that then the U.S. is responsible for the way they are treated in those countries. So it's right. not like the U.S. wants to just proffer these dictators. It's that it's in their national interest to have stable orders in these regimes, even if they have to balance or mitigate human rights against those regimes. Exactly. And this was, again, I'm not legitimizing this, so I expect to get some angry emails, but this was bin Laden's 96 fatwa against the United States was that you are propping up these governments. And that's why he kind of started his campaign against the U.S. Why should U.S. citizens, why should the listeners, the viewers care about the U.N.? The United Nations is partly exists because of the United States, right? So after World War II, we ended up bringing these 51 countries together to sign the U.N. Charter <clears throat> and create this organization. And we have a big stake in what happens at the United Nations. So again, as one of the P5, as one of the founding members, as one of the wealthiest and most powerful members in the organization, we have a lot of power to lead in what direction the organization decides to take. Um, and so, you know, you, you remove yourself from the organization, it can still exist without you. Um, this was something that that Russia learned when they stormed off and left the P5, right? And the United States ended up going into Korea because with UN backing, because Russia wasn't there to veto it, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to have a seat at the table so that decisions don't get made that harm you as a country. And we provide 22% of the resources to the UN, far more than in any of the other countries. And so, again, that gives us some backing, some power. We have some authority to decide where, where that gets spent and how it gets spent. Um, and we can pull out of organizations, special agencies that we might not agree with at any particular time as well. Um, and so in doing so, we have that seat at the table. We have an ability to guide the policies and procedures of the organization itself um, and it does a lot of good in terms of sort of the human security angle, right? So we mentioned that they're terrible at <laughs> conflict, right? And, and conflict, well, conflict resolution in terms of negotiation, they're very good at, but not in terms of boots on the ground, right. taking care of things. But 
in an area that they're exceptional at is aid development, helping or groups, populations that are suffering, um, whether that's refugee populations, populations that are experiencing famine, right? These, these agencies of the United Nations do an amazing job of that. Um, and so if there's an aid organization that's, keep, that's helping refugees, let's say, where they are, that's fewer refugees that are trying to come to the United States to escape their circumstances, right? So if you're an American yeah. citizen, then that might be in your interest. So it, it's complicated because it's, there are many different orders of um, or levels of importance, and, and it's not necessarily a direct line from the United States in the UN and how it benefits our citizens. But if if you think about all of the different ways that, and all of the different things that the United Nations does as a whole, it benefits the U.S. in a variety of ways. So for citizens that don't like the U.N. or say, oh, the U.S. just wastes money there or something like that, it's actually a pretty inexpensive way for the United States to exert its global leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's always oh, 22% of the, UN, of the U.N. budget comes from the U.S., but that's not a ton of money no. from the U.S., actually. It right. Really, it, it's less than 2 or 3% of our foreign aid, period, mm -hmm. even though it goes to 22% of the U.N. Yeah. It doesn't really cost the United States that much. And the benefits, the idea is that if the U.N. handles these issues of low or soft politics properly, that they won't turn into big issues or war. So if you get get in on the ground and handle famine or you know international refugee and migration services before something gets cataclysmically out of order, then they won't have conflict, and and that obviously benefits the U.S. and the the world order generally. Right. Let's get into specific uh, here. This is what I really want to talk about <laughs> into teaching the United Nations systems. I didn't want to just start with this because I wanted to make sure the the audience understood, you know, why the UN is around and, you know, how it helps with things in Afghanistan or could help or ought to help or how it fails. Mm -hmm. So how do you teach the UN to university students? It's one of my favorite subjects to teach. And part, part of that is because it's one where you can be really hands-on. Uh, Model UN has existed for a very long time. And so there are lots of different lessons that you can use to to teach students how all of this fits together and how everything works and how the United Nations is trying to help solve global problems. And that's one of the things that the UN is actually really good at, right? The, the issues that one country can't solve single-handedly. Right. You know, the United States can solve or try to solve lots of conflicts around the world or uh, other bilateral issues that we've worked on, but we individually can't solve climate change, right? We individually- Crosses boundaries. Exactly, can't, can't solve COVID, right? So all these issues that are global in reach that affect just about everyone, the United Nations serves as a platform where everybody can kind of come together, learn best practices, share information, and and- really try to move forward to solve, solve those problems. So that's one thing that I try to drive home very quickly with the students is how useful the United Nations can be in a variety of areas. 
And we get to be really hands-on playing these simulation games of the United Nations. So, so, so explain the model UN, because I, I'm sure most of the, the audience has no idea what this is. So you teach the UN through what's a yes. simulation, a game mm-hmm. called the Model United Nations. So just break that down yes. for us. So, so I kind of refer to it as United Nations LARPing. <laughs> LARPing stands for live action role play. So we get assigned a country from the National Model United Nations Conference. Uh, this year we're going to be Vietnam, which is very exciting. I was so stoked to hear that. And then we learn all about our country, and we learn about the United Nations system as well. Right? What, about, what does the Security Council do? What does the General Assembly do? What are all of these different specialized agencies and committees that exist, and, and how do they work on global issues, as well as learning about those global issues themselves, too. And so as we're learning these things, we're coming up with our own solutions from our country's perspective, which is another great thing about Model UN is that you get to learn about these global issues, not just from the American perspective. So you really have to put yourself in the mindset of another country, maybe a poorer country. Many countries in the world don't contribute 22% of the budget to the UN, but they use up a lot of that budget Mm. because the UN has a lot of special agencies on the ground trying to help in these countries. And so if you're Zimbabwe, for example, there are going to be a lot of organizations on the ground that are helping you. And, And again, that gives you a different perspective of what the UN can do. When you're seeing the benefit of, you know, babies getting vaccinated and... You know, food food programs coming and, and helping families and the High Commission for Refugees providing tents for refugee families. You can really see the benefit of what's happening. So what type of so they learn the U.N. system, they learn about their their the country that they're representing. Mm-hmm. What type of skills? How does this help them with jobs in the future, for instance? Because uh, I know they learn it's not just academic uh, a knowledge, which of course is important in the university setting, but they actually learn skills as well that are helping with, with anything that they do in their career. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. So <clears throat> we work on a variety of skills that can translate into really any career that you move into moving on. So we work on policy papers, so professional writing, we write the same paper over and over and over again to kind of get it right, based on the requirements that the National Model United Nations Conference sets for us. So it's a question of answering the question, right, <laughs> which is something that some of our students struggle with. They'd rather a- answer the question that they want to answer <laughs> rather than the question that they've been given. Yeah. Right? That's all students' issues. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> meeting, meeting all of the requirements, all of the things that the, the National Unit national model united nations is asking for so you teach policy writing technical writing skills which translates into business science mathematics any of those hard sciences use technical writing yes absolutely and yeah they're having to use the jargon and all of the terminology so they're learning all of this and how to incorporate it into a paper in a way that doesn't take away from the substance of of the paper Um, and then they practice public speaking we, the, the great horror for yes, most people. <laughs> yes, we give lots of, of speeches in class. We practice that public speaking because, again, when they go to the conference, they're going to have to speak in front of anywhere from 20 to 200 people. Wow. And 
we want them to be comfortable with that. We want them to be confident in that. And they're suited up, right? So yes, yes. We come to class prepared, feeling it, feeling our power suits. <laughs> and so they have to learn how to eat, work, give a speech in suits, which which most people just aren't used to. Yes, I mean, especially so that's a real practical students. like thing that they learn is just how to be comfortable in a suit. Yes, because it's not comfortable to wear a suit. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's awesome. What else? Uh, what do you do when you? Because I know you go to New York, uh, mm-hmm. and I forgot to mention in the, at the beginning, Nadia is the the director of the Model United, United Nations program here, and also the director of the Junior Model United Nations. So she allows the community to participate in this by having middle schools come to campus and and do a a, a smaller version of the Model United Nations that's held in New York every year. So uh, when you, so when you go to New York with the college group, what do you do? Is it just you know? 18 hours a day at the conference and then you come home or what else? No, of course, that would be a really hard sell. We definitely (laughs) also do some sightseeing. So, you know, I usually give a little bit of a chance for the students in the class to pick what they'd rather do. Uh, but we almost always go to the Empire State Building. We've done, which you hate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh, folks, and Nadia knows because I'm terrified of heights. And she has seen me cry in the, model, in the Empire State Building as well as hundreds of students. Yes. They, they love that, too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you didn't get to come last time, but we also have taken a, a cruise around the oh, harbor near yeah. harbor so uh, a boat tour at sunset so you get to watch the lights come up and it's really cool and learn a little bit about the layout of the city and stuff like that too uh, we definitely go eat a lot oh, and we yeah. try to eat at at least one culturally relevant restaurant to the country that we've been assigned but also we got to hit up little Italy and get some good. Yes. <laughs> Shout out there. Maybe they'll sponsor the podcast. <laughs> uh, what a, so something really cool that I've always enjoyed and it doesn't always happen, but the students get the opportunity to meet with actual ambassadors, actual delegates. Uh, can you talk about that in, in a couple minutes? Yeah. So last time we went, we were Iceland. Last time we physically got to go to New York, we were, we represented Iceland and we got to go to the Icelandic mission to the UN and meet with one of their delegates, ask them questions about the issues, you know, Iceland's stance on the issues that our students would later be discussing in committee. So it was a really great experience to kind of pick the brain of the person that you're trying to represent at the conference. And, you know, they usually treat you to some coffee and and pastries, sometimes culturally relevant pastries and stuff, too. You had a cool experience with the Iran mission, right? Yeah. So earlier on. So full disclosure, I I was the director of the Model UN for, for a while here at Augusta University. And, yeah, we got to meet the... Iranian delegation, which was just, uh, it was pretty amazing because that's something most folks don't get to do. And you're on sovereign territory when you go into these places. So we had to get through their security and we were inside Iran in the United States. It was really bizarre. And, you know, they had their assistants walking around, checking up on what we were writing as we were taking notes and uh, shooing off questions that were probably uncomfortable for them to answer because it, it could have put the Iranians in a calling their bluff kind of about human rights or things like that. Uh, and it was just really, even as a, 
for a professor, a scholar, it was really cool for me to be there and just witness a different type of governing structure in person. And and the students were just really in awe too. I mean, we just always there was always this guy just circling around us, and it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. And they were like, "He's just our assistant." And I was like, "I bet he's your assistant." Like, <laughs> we're not taking any bad notes. Like, thank you for having us. I mean, they were generous in letting us come there, and, yeah. and it was awesome. But it was just a different side of that, especially if you compare it to to the Icelandic mission. You know, it was just laid back and everything. Oh, yeah. And the Iranians provided uh, tea. They provided uh, tons of. Uh, cultural pastries for us. I mean, they went all out with what they set up, and it was it was just awesome. So they were very gracious, but it, you could also feel the the tension. Like they knew they were talking to American students, mm-hmm. and they knew that we knew we were talking to Iranians, and that d- dynamic was was certainly clear, especially to all the students. Yeah, yeah. This is awesome. Uh, one, can you give one takeaway to the, to the audience uh, about? Afghanistan or security or or the UN or anything that could be useful or help students decide what they want to do or help parents decide or uh, well one takeaway about model UN is that more consistently than anything else our students say that they come out of it with confidence so that's just the coolest most rewarding thing as a professor to be told that you know, I came into this class and I really wasn't sure about what was going on or I really wasn't comfortable talking in front of people, but I come out of it feeling more confident in who I am as a scholar, as a student, as somebody that's going to be going into the job market soon. And and so that's a really cool takeaway about just Model UN in general, I think. And that's awesome. And, and as professors, you know, it's it's always cool to be able to bond with students. And I think the UN, the Model UN program, more than any other course or program I'm involved in, teaches uh, us to love our students and the students to love us in a professional, academic way. And you just really, you know, bond with them and mm-hmm. create a common identity. And you you become munners, as we say, forever, yeah. <laughs> right? Like once a munner, always a munner. Definitely. Uh, this is awesome. We're gonna we're gonna, folks. If you want to uh, help. The Model United Nation program here at Augusta University will provide some some links to donate to the program, to our, the foundation account for Augusta University, uh, to help these students. Uh, there's scholarship opportunities if you want to help the uh, underrepresented or underprivileged students uh, pay for the trip. It does cost money, uh, so we always do what we can to try to raise money for them as well. So we'll put all these links in the in the show notes when it comes out and on the Instagram for it. Thank you so much, Professor Nadia, for being here. It's awesome to, to talk to you on the podcast and to, to let everybody uh, hear why you're so awesome. <laughs> Thank you. It's been awesome. Make sure to follow us on social media. Like us, subscribe, share, comment, email. We are at beyond underscore bias underscore podcast on the gram. Our YouTube channel is beyond bias podcast channel. Feel free to email us at, yep, you guessed it, beyond bias podcast at gmail.com. And of course, follow me, your host on all the typical platforms. I am at Dr. Craig D. Albert. Professor Nadia, is there a way for listeners to follow or keep up with you and or the UN program on social media? I am on Facebook. The Model UN is on Facebook and Twitter at Augusta Model UN. At Augusta Model UN and Augusta University Model UN on Facebook. And we will post those links so you can... 
donate, follow, keep up, see some pictures of what they'll do this year in New York as they represent the delegation from Vietnam. And as always, we end with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the eminent social and political philosopher. Quote, There are two things which a democratic people will always find very difficult, to begin a war and to end it. End quote. Be nice to someone today and know that you are loved. Now.